She was a champion wrestler, a star attraction, and the measuring stick of women in sports for decades. But all good things come to an end. It's the story of Cora Livingston, Part 11. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. From the high desert in the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening or good morning, wherever across this great land of ours and beyond. This is Nick Gossert, and that introduction is just for my co-host, Heidi Howitzer. How the heck are ya? Oh, I'm great. I didn't know we were doing a Coast to Coast episode, but uh, fuck it, we ball. I'm here for it. Let's talk oh, about Cora Livingston and her relation to uh, the great unknown, Aliens. That is, in my heart, we're always doing Coast to Coast. It just happens to be about wrestling. Art Bell, a great broadcaster, a great American, a great citizen of the earth, Coast to Coast AM, one of our favorites. So, of course, had to go with an intro to that, just for us, despite us trying to connect with you, the listener. Why do we do We're these? all, like, connecting with each other. Let's call it Art Bell to Bell. All right, sorry, that's all I got. Welcome back to Pro Wrestling History Nerds. This is Cora Livingston, Part 11. And yes, Part 11 implies there is Parts 1 through 10. So if this is your first stop here on the Hippodrome Express, if this is your first visit to our show... Maybe go, hey, I should maybe start back at part one, find out who Cora is, who she was, what made her her, what made her career so important and so amazing. So by the time you get here, it all makes sense. You know, but I'm not going to tell you to hit stop if you don't want to. By all means, jump on in, see if it makes any sense. Maybe you know pro wrestling history a little bit so you'll know some of the names, places, and situations. And just enjoy the sounds of our voices and the tales we tell. Yes, the sound, the beautiful dulcet tones of Nick Gossert and Heidi Howitzer. And before we jump into it, I do want to give my standard disclaimer, which is that I am doing the best I can with the material that I am finding. Truly, I did not expect this to be such a long series. Cora Livingston, when you find out about her in kind of survey history books about old-time wrestling, usually she's a page and a half. She's a mention in somebody else's biography by saying, oh, there was a woman wrestling champion in the early 1900s named Cora Livingston. And that's typically about it. And I wanted to find out more. I wanted to flesh out her story. And I assumed I'd find enough for maybe two or three episodes. But gosh darn it, here we are rocketing into part 11. And sometimes there are still gaps. Sometimes there is still bad information that was gotten from the press, decontextualized, retold as a different story later on. So sometimes you'll say, hey, Nick, what happened to this rematch with Laura Bennett that is in her Wikipedia? And, you know, it looks like it probably didn't happen. It was just the story of her first match kind of told later on in life, misreported by sports writers down the road, and everybody of a the same match told twice. Memory is a funny thing. There are also gaps in her history because she was primarily working vaudeville and burlesque houses. So when the sports paper, so when the sports paper would cover her, sometimes you get a crazy feud and then no reporting on the blow off because a reporter didn't go to the burlesque house that night, didn't go see any vaudeville, maybe some, a baseball game came up, who knows. So there is unfortunately missing information. So I do my best to compile it, correlate it, correlate it, and... <laughs> it's a good one, guys. And make a coherent narrative with 
the themes that I feel are implied. Again, the historian is always a storyteller, but I do my best to contextualize the gaps in the information. So moving into 1925, one thing, it's a story that doesn't involve Korra, but it was such a big change in the pro wrestling world that I do want to include it just in passing. On January 8th, 1925, Big Wayne Munn versus Ed the Strangler Lewis. Ed Lewis was the kingpin of pro wrestling at the time. He was the champion and had been for so long that he was getting very stale. So they brought in Wayne Munn, a man who could not wrestle to save his life, but Sandow saw a star. He was a giant of a man, a war hero, even though he didn't do too much heroic, but hey, going to World War I is heroic unto itself. He was And a, he was really tall. He was really tall, and he was a former football star in the Midwest, which made him akin to a god. But what he couldn't do is wrestle to save his life. He was one <laughs> of the first true show champions, show stars. So the plan was to put the belt on him for a little while, have him protected by the Sandow Trust stars like Pesic and Zabisco, and they did an injury finish to keep Ed Lewis strong, where Munn threw Lewis over the top rope and he was too injured to continue, and Munn was given the title, but Lewis kept the belt, and they had a plan to stage the rematch that summer, reunite the title, big picture storytelling, it got lots and lots of press, but this was, again, an important change in how wrestling was done because they put the belt on a man who could not legitimately defend it. Wrestling has been predetermined for a very long time, but you still needed to be able to handle yourself as a shooter just in case. This is the first time where a showbiz champ existed. So kind of an important timestamp in wrestling as a whole. I've you hear that, guys? The beginning of the sports entertainer. Exactly. From the Indianapolis Times, January 21st, 1925, Cora pinched. Boston, January 21st. Cora Livingston, big and strong enough to win considerable prominence a few years ago as the champion wrestler of her sex, is just a woman with a woman's frailties after all. What? Oh my goodness. Okay. What a terrible headline. I hate it so much, but please proceed. While municipal court attaches and spectators stared their amazement Tuesday, Cora was arraigned on a charge of stealing a lipstick from a department store counter. The woman wrestler denied the charge. The case was adjourned until January 30th. Cora's husband supplied bail. So, Cora got arrested. The Roanoke Times claimed, quote, The woman wrestler offered no resistance when picked up by a store detective, and that bail was $50.00 which seems excessive for those days, almost $900 today. So yeah, she was arrested for shoplifting. A tube of lipstick. And I also want to point out that back in those days, a store detective could come and arrest you. So that's like the, the loss prevention guy at Target coming to your house and arresting you for shoplifting. Like that's. But I like to think he was power. in a trench coat and a funny hat. From the Boston Globe on January 28, 1925, Cora Livingston convinces court, cleared in case involving lipstick and hat. The official charges of stealing a fur hat and a lipstick, quote, 
Cora said that on the day the agent claimed the hat was stolen, she was in her husband's office all afternoon. He is Paul Bowser. She said she was arranging tickets and racks for sale. Several witnesses corroborated her testimony. Judge Murray found her not guilty. As the article stated, quote, that made things all Jake again. All Jake. So now I'm, I, do, I do have the curiosity. Did she really get misidentified as a shoplifter and she was really at the office sorting tickets for sale? Or did everybody pitch in to cover up a weirdo deciding to start shoplifting at a strange age? Yeah, that's that's uh, questionable all around. And we haven't had any um, all nefarious behavior by Cora prior to this. It's all been within the ring. Yeah, so I'm very curious if maybe she was a lifelong shoplifter. Maybe she decided... Maybe she was just really good at it. Yeah, you know, maybe she had a supplemental career as a shoplifter this whole time, and this is the first time she got caught, learned a life lesson, who can say? But an interesting story to find nonetheless. And another woman wrestler was arrested on March 23rd, 1925, according to the Boston Globe, the following day. Wrestler Catherine Bobby Miller, who was a former mainstay at the Howard, was arrested for stealing the coin box of a telephone at the train station. Which is way more of like a heist than yeah than shoplifting. I'm thinking, what a what an amazing thing to like. Did she just walk over and pry it off, throw it in her old timey car, and drive away? Yes, I like to think that's exactly what happened. Clearly, not to any success, but very exciting nonetheless. Also, one of those things where you're like, if if you go to the trouble of this, I feel like you've done this before. Yes, that's not a first-time crime type of thing. But, yeah. I mean, you, I have to admit, like, probably during this era, crime kind of had to be a secondary job for a lot of carnies. Yes, and, and it was so... Not that I ever fantasize about going to the past and committing crimes, but it seems like it was very easy to get away with a lot unless you were just uh, engaging in silly goosery. Yeah, I feel like I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I feel if I had a time machine, I could be an amazing criminal in the year 1925. Yeah, I am so good at talking my way out of things and bullshitting. Oh, my God. And I'm very charming. I would be so good at uh, high crime. If anyone out there has a time machine, let us know. We need to test these theories of ours. Hell yeah. From the Boston Globe, April 9th, 1925, announcing that Big Wayne Munn, now the heavyweight champion of the world, would be on hand at the Howard to hype his match against Alex London the following week at the arena. Cora was advertised versus Eva Lamar, along with Stasiak versus Charles O'Donnell. So yeah, we have Wayne Munn being toured around. Like, the way I always think of Wayne Munn is like how the new Captain America was presented in the early episodes of Falcon and Winter Soldier, where it's just like he's put on this like press tour and being shown off as being this amazing superstar. At one point, I think it was Harvard actually offered Wayne Munn a position as a shoot wrestling coach. They had everybody convinced to that level. <laughs> so they were doing amazing with this. They, this was like a, the work of all works. It was the PR accomplishment of the wrestling business. I mean, it really was. A real coup, if you will. And it lasted pretty well up until 
April 15, 1925, when Munn was supposed to defend his belt against trust policeman Stanislaw Zabisco. Zabisco being an amazing star who went from the 1800s all the way up until the 1920s, 1930s. And so did Zabisco go into business for himself? Not necessarily just for himself. So Stanislaw Zabisco <laughs> resented having to put over people he could shoot beat left and right. He apparently had a good offer from the Stetcher company to shoot on Big Wayne Munn, take the belt, and bring it over to drop it to Joe Stetcher. Thus, because uh -oh. the Stetchers and the Goldust Trio had been opposite ends of the spectrum, the Goldust Trio had been shutting out Stetcher and his group from title contention and big shows, so this was the way to fuck them. So they paid Zabisco a good amount of money to shoot on Wayne Munn, take the championship, and then take it away from the Goldust Trio and bring it over to the Stetcher group. And that's what happened. Munn thought he was going out to be protected with his limited wrestling ability by the, oh boy. By the veteran Stanislaw Zabisco and ended up getting ragdolled by the smaller, much older Zabisco, pinned left and right. It was a disaster for the business that... Bad PR, guys. Yeah, it was a disaster for Billy Sandow's company. But you know what? When the champion gets beat left and right in the middle of the ring, pinned twice in a row, even the referee was forced to count the falls because they were completely obvious. Zabisco knew what he was doing. It was the biggest double cross in wrestling history. And that brought a big change in the power dynamic of wrestling because now all the power went from Sandow and Lewis over to Stetcher. I mean, they were all still big business, but you could no longer say, this guy's the champion pointing to Ed Lewis. The big unification where Ed Lewis had the belt, but Munn was the champion rematch. They actually did go through with it, but it meant nothing and it was not a hit. So again, just another big change in the wrestling world at this time. Makes sense. I, I would expect a transfer of power as well in that kind of scenario. And if you want to know more about that, check out my series on the Goldust Trio and wrestling in the 20s. I talk about that for darn near an hour by itself. From the Boston Globe on May 27, 1925, Cora wrestled Evelyn Morse in the main event of a fundraiser for Carr Wallinger, an old-time actor who was in the hospital. So, always nice to see that there is a easy landing pad for people in show business, which includes charity from your fellow performers who band together to pay one-tenth of your hospital bill. <laughs> and then uh, inevitably lose it all. On May 30th, 1925, Stanislaw Zabisco drops the title to Joe Stetcher, completing that little mini story that I told about the big change in the wrestling industry. Zabisco made a lot of money in that, but unfortunately was now branded as somebody you can't trust. He betrayed the Goldust Trio, therefore they could never trust him again. They could never really work with him again. And the Stetcher Group, well, you know what? We paid this guy to betray every aspect of the wrestling industry on our behalf, but he still did it, so now we can't trust him. So it really did put a bullet in Zabisco's reputation and ability to work well with others. 
because you know what? You can't trust a spy, even if he's your spy. And that was uh, that was not a small scale uh, plot. Rather high profile. From the Boston Globe, December 15th, 1925, announcing matches at the Howard, booked by Paul Bowser, quote, Miss Livingston will meet several female contestants. Special matches have been arranged. So again, Paul Bowser has completely solidified his hold on pro wrestling in the Boston area. He is now the de facto kingpin of sports entertainment. He is, within a matter of years, pushed out other promoters, and he is the gold standard for wrestling in this area and would be for quite some time. And again, we have a big time gap here, partly due to wrestling not being a hot weather sport, and also that Cora was helping her husband run his wrestling business and training students at their school. I'm trying very hard to avoid getting bogged down in Paul Bowser's promoting because that would double the runtime and take the focus away from Cora's story and turn it into his. Granted, their personal and professional lives were deeply intertwined, but again, I want this to be Cora's story. From the Portland Main Evening Express, March 10th, 1926, Woman Matt Champion at Arena next Monday. Paul Bowser was booking matches at the arena the following Monday. Quote, has not yet signed an opponent to meet the giant Irishman, Ned McGuire, in the main event. Main event? Main? Main event? Main? Uh, uh? Oh, I get it. It took me a minute. I'm glad you said it six times. It's the only so way to get I it through. Was... That's the only way I understand things. I like to actually be beaten over the head with a joke. It's the same tactics I take. Quote, Cora Livingston, champion woman wrestler of the world, will be one of the feature performers, and she will meet some other of the best women wrestling in the East. The next day, the same paper announced her opponent as Eva Lamar, the Canadian champion. Because if you're from another country, you are the champion. And here's a wild one that is a Paul Bowser story, but it's just, it's so wild that I had to retell it. From March 12, 1925, Joe Stature agreed to wrestle a, quote, unknown wrestler in Boston for a purse of 11500 While making the deal, Tony Stature, Joe's brother and manager, with Boston promoter Paul Bowser, he was convinced the match was against Jake Bristler and that the Stetchers could bring their own referee. The Stetchers clearly smelled something fishy in Boston on March 11th and said they wanted to be paid up front. Bowser well, now... The Stetchers would know, wouldn't they? Exactly. <laughs> Bowser. If there's anyone who's an authority on sketchy behavior at this point, particularly in this era. And Bowser now claimed that he couldn't pay Stetcher his guarantee, but offered a percentage of the house. Boo. Boo. House was light, brother. Stetcher was already there and was supposed to wrestle up essentially a nobody, so he was willing to do it. Bristler was already in the ring when Stetcher made his entrance, but the Stetcher referee was stopped at the entrance and replaced with a Bowser referee. And once Stetcher was in the ring, Bristler was escorted out, and Joe Malkowitz came out of the crowd, removed his street clothes to reveal his trunks, and was announced as the surprise opponent. Bowser clearly needed to plan his double cross a little more subtly. Stetcher simply got out of the ring and walked away before it started. 
the announcer shouted with excitement that Malkowitz was the new world champion via forfeit. So, Bowser was closely associated with Sandow and the Goldust Trio, so this was an attempt to double-cross Stetcher and get the title back to a Bowser wrestler who would clearly drop it back to Lewis or whomever they wanted to prop up at that point. He was clearly hoping that the social pressure of him already being in the ring, being the champion, he would go with the flow and be like, crap, I'm already in the ring, I've been announced, I'm just going to have to deal with this. But he did the smart thing because he realized a setup immediately and was like, peace out, bitches, and just got out of the ring and left. boy. But it went kind of poorly. The Birmingham News article, quote, Joe Stetcher gets tangled in squabble. Champ refuses to wrestle Malkowitz at Boston and near riot results. The Portland Maine Evening Express headline, Joe Stetcher runs out and says he was framed. Almost a riot over Stetcher claimed the Boston Globe on March 12, 1926. Stetcher immediately held a press conference telling his side of the story, claiming he'd wrestle Malkowitz if it wasn't an obvious screw job. The public didn't pay much attention to the drama one way or the other. Stetcher said, quote, It was a distinct frame-up all around. But Malkowitz claimed the title in Boston and claimed for his entire career that Stetcher was afraid of him. Paul Bowser claimed Joe Malkowitz as the true champ for a different reason, having beaten Earl Caddick four days before Caddick lost the title to Joe Stetcher, fudging the dates of their match from 1921 instead of the actual 1919 date of it. Again, keep in mind that Bowser was aligned with the Lewis Mont Sandow Trust and was just trying to put together a screw job to get the title back to them. So if you ever think, boy, this Paul Bowser guy seems like the swellest egg in all of Wrestledom, nope, he was just as willing to fuck people over as anyone. That's right, guys. The Montreal screw job was not unique. Long and storied history of people getting screwed out of things. But those were just important timestamps to show where the wrestling business was at this time. Now we'll focus pretty much entirely on Cora, I promise. The March 13th Evening Express had an article about Cora, including a photo of her in white trunks that makes her look naked. It was very shocking for a second when I saw it. It was an open... In it was an I'm open sure it was very risque for the time, too. Maybe that was the point. Sensationalism. Yeah, yeah with like the old-timey print job, then what 1926 could do with a black and white print. It was a little like, oh my, oh no, that's just, just white trunks. Just white trunks. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. It was an open invite to, quote, all the women of Portland to attend the performance at the arena on Monday night and find out for themselves why she has kept young and in perfect health. Her origin story changed slightly, returning her to the convent, but that she took up wrestling for health because she was such a frail youth. Quote, she is a firm believer in women's rights and believes in physical culture. She suggests walking fresh air and drinking plenty of water. And you know what? You can't go wrong there. That's actually really solid advice, especially at the time. I mean, for any listeners who are like, I need to do something to change my health for the better do you have to change everything do you have to start going to the gym every day i mean that'd be cool right but no just start walking and drinking lots of water yeah and in those days i'm surprised it didn't also involve four medicinal tonics and radium <laughs> i was gonna say cocaine but yeah that too 
Well, good, good, good thing that cocaine has never been an active source of problems in the wrestling industry. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> On the 15th, they described her opponent, Ava Lamar, as having wrestled for five years, trained by her brother. She was a great basketball player while in high school and could run 100 yards faster than any other girl in her class. Her hobbies include horseback riding and coasting. Coasting meaning sailing down the coast as a, in a recreational boat. On the 16th, the Evening Express covered the match, reporting that Cora won in 6 minutes 47 seconds, quote, in a match that surprised the uninitiated fans because the lady grapplers showed so much skill. Shocking. They haven't been doing that for years. On the same card, Omalkowitz defeated Leon Labriola, claiming it to be his first title match since, quote, beating Joe Stetcher. And how's this for a headline? The Evening Press announced her on April 15, 1926, as facing Edna Molkovich, quote, whom Doc Alamy of the Boston Post says is the most perfect woman athlete in captivity. <laughs> Sorry for the decibel increase uh, for all of our, our listeners. That just, uh, is this like a traveling circus type thing? Do you keep her between bars, B between bars, behind bars? There we go. Uh, I need to, I need to know more. Yeah. A I, lot I, to unpack here. Yeah. My mental. Or uncage. Yeah. My mental image is they bring out a cage and they're trying, it's like they're trying to coax like a lion or a gorilla out where everybody's standing around trying to get like the long pole with a hoop around her neck to get her out. She's you know, you know, the clip of Miss Piggy from the Muppets, I, I guess like that was redundant. Who doesn't know Miss Piggy is from the Muppets anyway, like behind the prison bars, like yelling and slowly pulling them apart. Like that's the visual I get. Yeah. Her and then she, and like, then she comes oh out, out and yeah. Then she, she squeezes out and, and throw someone in a hammerlock. It's definitely not as cool as what we're imagining, but I wish it were. <laughs> Alas. Portland, Maine, Evening Express, April 21st, 1926. Advertising a card at the arena the following night, including Cora Livingston versus Edna Mukovich, the young Polish woman. Quote, Referee Burbank, who is the official arbiter at most of the big shows in Boston, will also referee the matches at the arena, and during the progress of the bouts, he will explain all the holds to the fans. So, traveling ref and in-ring commentary, I hope he got a, a double pay for that one. It's a lot. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, so the referee has to be refereeing the match and is also explaining what's happening to the crowd. Yeah, is this like a is this like a Booker T situation? I whatever his multitasking skills involve, kudos to him. I hope he got paid properly. I was probably didn't. The accompanied photo was Cora still wearing her belt. You hear that, Virginia Mercero? Just saying. <laughs> From the April twenty third, nineteen twenty six Evening Post. Cora beat Edna Mulkovich, the big Polish girl, in 10 minutes and 32 seconds the night before. Stasiak won two out of three against Alex London, and the press speculated that the win would put Stasiak against Ed Lewis. And this is something I think I mentioned it last time, but it's so important to think of Cora's career in its longevity. She started out in the Gotch, Hackenschmidt, McLeod, Jenkins era. 
She was active during that kind of weird dead spot post-Gosh retirement, and now she's still active in the Goldust Tria era. So she is just walking across generations of wrestling stardom with this very long career that is just so atypical of the wrestling business as a whole, let alone of this era. Yeah, you don't you don't see that, especially with women's wrestling. Um, Japan would be the exception. And even then, a large portion of the women, they start so young. I mean, they can happily retire with having long, uh, fan fantastic careers before they're 30. Um, but you'll see uh, some of the workers continue to, again, span decades, generations. Uh, but no, really pretty out of the ordinary i think the only i'm sure i'm neglecting someone but like if you were to think of like a wwe or a big promotion over here in the states maybe natalia would be like the closest you'd get to someone like that exactly yeah it's it's very rare but it's amazing when you see it happen whether it's the person's charisma their in-ring skill their just capacity to not get injured or turn into human disasters Sometimes the greatest way for sustained careers and stardom is just simply don't get hurt or start smelling your keys too much. Nice throwback to our earlier commentary. December 1926, she was advertised back at the Howard, surprise, surprise, along with Stanley Stasiak, the Polish Lion, and Ned McGuire, the Irish Champion, along with the Laughing Through Company, headed by dancing star Peaches the Monte Carlo Jazz Band, and vaudeville and picture shows to complete the night. Always something doing. 1 to 11. Pottsville, Pennsylvania, Republican and Herald. Champion Cavewoman. Chicago will soon see Virginia Mercereau, world middleweight champ girl wrestler, do her stuff. She is at present training at Kit Howard's Gym, Chicago. Miss Mercereau grappled the title from Cora Livingston of Boston. She is shown wrestling with Ed Herman, a contender for the middleweight crown. The photo Oh, show a little intergender action here. The photo shows Virginia in a staged wrestling photo with her in standing position working to pin Ed Herman. So intergender wrestling was starting to be more and more of a thing. Virginia Mercer wrote a lot of her career was intergendered wrestling. So yes, it's not a new thing. It's not a new shocking thing. Dudes on Twitter, calm the fuck down. I was just about to ask, so what year is this, Nick? 1927. 1927. So in 1927, oh, intergender wrestling was, while somewhat of a spectacle, uh, still accepted. Um, but now, now it's a problem, guys. It's a brand new thing. No one's ever done it. And she, it was again at the Howard in April, according to the April 12th, 1927 Boston Globe, this one stood out because another woman wrestler, Kitty Grant, was in the listing of wrestlers on the bill. So this is the first time I would see an ad for the Howard where they would just list the stars, not matches. And another woman wrestler was in the mix as well. It wasn't Kitty Grant being the opponent of Cora Livingston. It was Kitty Grant kind of standing on her own two wrestling boots as a featured performer at the Howard. So I thought that was interesting to kind of see how the times they were changing. But one person, the times were changing in a way she did not like or expect. The San Francisco Examiner on May 8th, 1927, 
an article about Virginia Mercereau lamenting how wrestling is no longer popular in the area and how, quote, the situation is particularly trying for women wrestlers. It has been proven impossible to match female and male wrestlers in athletic contests. Perhaps this is because of chivalry, possibly because no woman wrestler has ever been discovered who can stand a chance against any one of a dozen men wrestlers who are available. The article claims that the lack of challengers to her title makes her title meaningless. Quote, It would be possible, sporting authorities affirm, to place in the limited confines of a telephone booth all the women in America who could make any sort of showing in a wrestling match. She is unfavorably compared to Jean Tunney, who earns a million dollars after winning the boxing championship, but poor Virginia barely making a fraction of that. Quote, the title is pleasing to her vanity, but where are the challengers who will make it mean something to Miss Mercero's bank account? There was a lack of women wrestlers in the West, but also maybe nobody wanted to work with her because she was almost certainly a fraudulent champ. And Paul That's what Mount I was just about to say. Like, of all the people to be speaking out about this, she might not be the best one. Anyone else you had said, I've been like, okay, maybe this is valid. But yeah, not, not Virginia. And it wasn't just the fact she was a fraudulent champ. She was a fraudulent champ at the expense of Cora Livingston. Cora Livingston, who is married to Paul Bowser. Paul Bowser being a tight ally of Sandel Mont and Lewis. So these are all people that if you are trying to advance in the wrestling business, you don't want those people thinking you're an asshole. So I have a feeling in my gut that a lot of people didn't want to work with Virginia Mercero because then you are acknowledging her as the actual champion. You are working with somebody who, as far as optics are concerned, has fucked over a close ally of the Goldust Trio. So yeah, if you are a young wrestler trying to make a name for yourself, that's not the way to do it. And I feel like a lot of people avoided her because of that. Because Networking, guys. Don't burn bridges. Yeah, so if she's in L.A., for example, Lou Darrow was a close associate of Lewis and Mont. So you have a hard time really breaking in and having these big matches if you have, uh, have some heat on you, brother. And nothing has changed. Don't be a dumbass. From the Boston Globe, December 19th, 1927. Joe Comar, the Lithuanian Tiger, will meet all comers. Cora Livingston will meet Miss Hazel Kennard of Somerville, who has trained hard for the bout and believes she can give the champion a real battle. So Hazel Kennard, having wrestled Cora God only knows how many times, is now ready to give her a real battle. Finally. Once again, it was amazing to wrestle in the day before television, before the internet, when you could do the same match against the same person 20 times over the course of a year, and nobody would be like looking at clips on the internet going like, this is the same spot that you did last time. It's boring now. See, if it's over, it's over. From the Yonkers, New York Herald Statesman, December 22nd, 1927, girl swimmer after Matt title, quote, jumping from the Atlantic Ocean into the wrestling ring, Betty Bushy of Dorchester is willing to meet anyone on her way to the women's wrestling title. Betty. Great name. Be it known was a swimmer, but is now a wrestler. She strangles, she trips, she grapples, and does whatever other tricks are in the rough and tumble artist's bag. 
a match has been arranged between Miss Bushy and Cora Livingston, here Livingstone, women's champion for the title, and Miss Bushy is sure that she is going to win. I am all done with swimming now, says Betty. It's too tame. It just doesn't give the same kind of thrill. From the January 29th, 1928 San Francisco Examiner, there was a short article about Miss Teddy Myers of Rome, Georgia, who claimed to be the heavyweight women's wrestling champion of the world, who also wrestled men. In the photo, she was applying a toehold on a male opponent. But more importantly was the half-page article above it. Monkeys as chauffeurs, baboons as servants, 20 years from now. <laughs> Claiming that monkey labor, not machinery, was the future of the workplace. I would just like to state for the record, everyone, that he actually sent me this article earlier in the week, and I absolutely lost it. And I really wanted to know why we don't have a feature um, stupid article from the annals of history <laughs> every week. And and this is this is the one. This is the one. I don't think you can top this. And I will post this. And it's especially the picture of a monkey wearing spectacles and a top hat with the lines, the dignified appearance of the monkey would make enhanced no little by his intelligent face as a banker or man of affairs. <laughs> we touch on all the important aspects of history. There was an advertisement in the Boston Globe on March 3rd, 1928 for the Howard. Wrestling champions, including Joe Bull Komar, Charlie Henson, and Cora Livingston. Social maids burlesque. Always something doing. 1 to 11. And at this point, I went on a side quest. I had to. I'm surprised I didn't do this earlier. I did a little research on the Howard Athenaeum, a.k.a. the Old Howard Theater. The site was originally a Millerite temple established in 1843. The Millerites were an apocalyptic sect that believed the second coming of Jesus would occur in 1844, as claimed by their prophet William Miller. But when the world failed to end, Miller's followers left the temple and went back to their lives feeling like a real bunch of silly geese. It was rebuilt as a theater in 1845, but burned down almost immediately. In 1846, the granite, gothic-style Howard was built to hold 1,360 ticket buyers for seated shows. It was the place for stage plays, and was a regular home to Edwin Booth, who many called the greatest American actor of his generation, as well as his younger brother, John Wilkes Booth, who was famous for different reasons. Oh. Wow. On May 4th, 1853, the Howard received some well-deserved negative attention. Sarah <laughs> Parker Raymond, a black woman who was an abolitionist activist and lecturer, bought a ticket via the mail for the opera Don Pascale and refused to sit in the segregated area. She was dragged out and pushed down a flight of stairs. She sued and received a $500 settlement, which was a lot of money at that time, which did Good. change a lot of the discrimination segregation policies. After the Civil War, most of the theater and opera crowd moved to the Boston Museum and the Boston Theater. So what do you do when you lose the class? You show your ass. Burlesque, comedy, wrestling, vaudeville, and anything else that would move tickets. Performers that graced the Howard stage included Abbott and Costello, Jimmy Durante, W.C. Fields, Jackie Gleason, Buster Keaton, Al Jolson, 
and boxers from John L. Sullivan to Rocky Marciano giving lectures on their sport there. Striptease-style burlesque became the venue's claim to fame, with performers like Sally Rand, Anne Ocorio, Gypsy Rose Lee being regulars. And speaking of regulars, according to rumors, John F. Kennedy would often attend shows during his Harvard days, as did many of his classmates. The Harvard class of 1937 made Anacorio an honorary member. In the end, the theater was shut down by the city's vice squad. They shot footage which led to indecency charges and the city of Boston did not renew the Howard's license in 1953. In 1960, an organization wanted to renovate the Howard to match its glory days and sought to raise $1.5 million to do so. But in a not-suspicious-at-all bit of timing, there was a fire in the building before they could do this, and was torn down by the city, which was pushing for an urban renewal project that saw mass destruction of non-colonial historic buildings. That is so upsetting, because that seems like such a cool historical building to have and uh, especially as a as a venue to potentially be able to run shows there again yeah what a what a shame yeah and if you look up and i do suggest everybody look up the old howard theater take out your phone check it out right now don't hit pause listen to my voice and look at what a beautiful <laughs> building this was. It was a granite stone gothic building. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. And it appears to have just been gutted by fire for the sake of tearing it down and building who knows what. From the Atlanta Journal on June 10th, 1928, an article about Miss Louise Gardner, a previous foe of Cora. In 1924, according to the article, Cora failed to beat her in a handicap match it also claimed that the following spring, Cora was DQ'd for strangling Gardner, you know, that tended to happen a lot in those days, and the rough gave her the match and the title to Miss Louise Gardner. So another fake claimant to the title. But don't be too mad, because this article was Gardner's obituary. <laughs> Fuck. In addition to being a wrestler, Gardner was a stunt performer, her final appearance was leaping from a hot air balloon with a parachute that failed to open. She fell 500 feet to the ground while an audience looked on in horror. Oh my god. Now I feel mildly bad for laughing. Oh, um, yeah, you're a monster, and shame on you. Yeah, well, there, there we have it. It's, it's, on, uh, it's on tape. From the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on September 23rd, 1928, Woman Won as Wrestler. A truly unhinged tale printed as a full-page article with both a photo of Cora and an illustration of the match. Quote, In 1911, a brawny Polish woman, disguised as a man, was working in a Pennsylvania coal mine. It was three months before her sex was discovered. During that time, she had engaged in a number of free-for-all fights and had come out of all of them, as well as her male antagonists. Paul Bowser, then Cora Livingston's manager, and later her husband, hearing of this man-woman and her tremendous strength, challenged her to a wrestling match with his protege. The man-woman of the mines accepted the challenge, and the bout took place in a Scranton theater. The Great gimmick. The audience of rough coal miners were deeply prejudiced in favor of their co-worker. The booing and catcalling that greeted Cora's appearance on the stage were enough to unnerve most women. 
but she sat down in the chair placed for her and smiled bravely at the hostile spectators. Then out upon the stage stalked one of their own kind, the man-woman of the mines. For a moment, absolute silence rested upon the little theater. Then, as the woman bowed and sat down, the low-vaulted roof of the theater echoed and re-echoed with the miners' shouted yells of encouragement. The referee called both girls to the center of the mat and spoke briefly with them. Then, in a loud voice, he stated the conditions of the match. No one understood, but that didn't matter. He finished his speech and signaled them to their corners. The gong sounded. The two women faced each other. Cora Livingston, 120 pounds, and the man-woman, 180 pounds. The article describes a match worthy of Ali versus Foreman or any Rocky movie finale. A story of Cora out-wrestling her giant opponent and slowly wearing her down until Cora finished her with a big throw and a pin. Quote, A drunken Slav threw a pop bottle at her. It fell wide of the mark, striking the backdrop near its base and sending up a small cloud of dust in the hot, sweat-soaked air. Later on, quote, It was all over in a second. She sent the man-woman over her head. Cora had pressed her shoulders and thighs to the mat for the count of ten. The police subdued the riot. You'd think that maybe I would have found this story a little sooner. So did this happen? Or did it happen anywhere near to this level of drama? Probably not, but it's possible. But either way, it's an amazing story. You know, with the way uh, that article was set up and written, I'm a little uh, disappointed now that there is not... Uh, wrestling broadcast along the veins of of sports radio where they do the play-by-play -play on baseball games football games and the like very similar feel yeah i i kind of heard all of this in my head with that kind of like tinny voice of an old-timey baseball play-by-play -play yes. radio show yes and now i really wish that was a thing and to my knowledge i don't think i don't think it is from the Washington Times, October 5th, 1928. Female Matt Champ. Cora Livingston, who defeated Laura Bennett, holder of the belt emblematic of the world's female wrestling championship in Kansas City, 1913, still retains that belt. At this point, it really is impressive and nice to point out, but a weird way to put it. Again, the press is putting the wrong timestamp on her match with Laura Bennett, which I assume is what led people to think that it was a rematch. From December 18th, 1928, Boston Globe. Paul Bowser promoted show featuring Stasiak, Cora, Dan Koloff, and Gus Sonnenberg. I bring this one up because of Gus Sonnenberg. Sonnenberg was a pro football player with no background in grappling who became a pro wrestler under the tutelage of Paul Bowser. He caused outrage with some critics and wrestlers with his football tackle move and lack of shooter skills, but he was charismatic and explosive in the ring. He ended up being the man to beat Ed Lewis in 1929, thus closing the long chapter of wrestling that centered on the in-ring and professional rivalry and intrigues between Ed Lewis and Joe Stetcher. I wonder what the football tackle move was. I wonder if it was like a spear. It was. Yeah, this is the first time you really started seeing a spear. And a lot of times they played it up where he would shoot the football tackle spear and send people flying into the, into the audience. So oh, was, good. So like a pounce spear. 
terrifying. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a big move that would send people flying into the crowd and then the audience would land in the front row's lap and be selling while Sonnenberg would be in the ring firing up. It was interactive showbiz ballyhoo of the highest order. And I figured you'd appreciate that one. I do. I was just thinking about adding that to my arsenal. And this was a big money deal with a big money risk. According to various sources, Ed Lewis received 50K of the 70K gate to put over Sonnenberg. And according to the often incorrect Marcus Griffiths book, Fall Guys, Bowser had to put $70,000 in escrow to guarantee Lewis got the belt back when Sonnenberg cooled off as a draw. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm not saying this was one of Griffin's fibs, but take it with a grain of salt. Bowser's territory was doing big money, and Jack Curley was doing everything in his power to discredit and damage Bowser's business. Again, I, I don't want to get too far off track and into a very complicated story, but I wanted to add context for just how much work went into running Bowser's promotion, which Cora contributed much to behind the scenes. So it's not just that Cora is getting a little bit older, and that's why she's not wrestling as much. She is a very busy woman helping run a wrestling school and her husband's territory at the same time. From the Boston Globe, March 6th, 1929, woman wrestler champs auto stolen. Quote, Cambridge police were notified last night that the automobile owned by Mrs. Paul Bowser of Longfellow Road, that city, was stolen from in front of Mahler's store, Cambridge. Mrs. Bowser, the former Cora Livingston, wrestling champion was in the store when the theft of the machine occurred. So this was the first time I found her referred to as formerly Cora Livingston, formerly the champion. So wrestlers a lot of times don't have a big retirement match because up until recently there wasn't pay-per-views or a TV reason to do so. A lot of times your last booking just happened to be your last booking. And sometimes you're gone for so long that people just assume you're gone forever. And I feel like that was starting to pop up at this time. I don't know. That sounds kind of stressful, honestly, all things considered. Although I guess at that point you could bill everything as your last match. So there's that potential draw. <laughs> if you've been keeping a list of all the women Cora had wrestled, well, you're a weirdo. But you also might remember Bobby Wilson. Her real name was Mrs. Catherine D. Fury, and she unfortunately died in a car accident on January 14th, 1930. Wait, her, her real name was Catherine D. Fury? Yeah. Why would you not wrestle under that name? I don't know. It's an amazing name. She could have been Furious Catherine. Ooh, the, she could have been Furious Kathy Fury. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Feel well, free to use that, guys. If you're if you're looking for a, a wrestling moniker, there you go. That's the one. And she won't uh, argue about it because she died in a car accident on January 14th, 1930, according to the Springfield, Missouri Leader and Press. Yikes. The Spokane, Washington Press on April 14th, 1930, a photo of Cora announcing that Cora, quote, sends forth a challenge to any and all members of her sex and of her weight. She is pictured with the gold belt, typed as hold in the typo, which is symbolic of the title she won from the 180-pound Laura Bennett recently. Recently. Yes, that was recently. Recently. Not like Cora's held the belt for fucking ever. Yeah, 15 years later. Recently. Recently. 
That piece ran in papers all over the United States for over a month. And here's one you'll appreciate. From the San Francisco Examiner, April 20th, 1930. A lesson for gay mashers from the woman wrestler. Quote, Dressed for the street, Virginia Mercero, professional wrestler, looks like the gentle, blue-eyed kind of blonde that men prefer. She looked like that to George Duffy, a 170-pound plumber, when his roving eye beheld her on the street in Chicago not long ago. But no sooner had he tipped his hat and eased smiling into the usual, pardon me, but haven't we met, than he found himself in the grip of a bone-cracking headlock that might as well have been administered by <laughs> Strangler Ed Lewis. Uh, so I love this for a lot of reasons. Um, I do think, pardon me, haven't we met is is really up there on pickup lines, you know, so feel free to start using that one, guys. Well, tap, tap of the hat, tap, tap of the hit, tip of the hat. There we go. I got there eventually. You know, it's the it's the destination, not the journey for this one. Um, but yeah, and that and that that seems like a very uh, valid reaction to just throw a man in a headlock. I like to think he was catcalling her. That's my guess. I feel they kind of soft-served that one because it gets better. When the police arrived, quote, the amused and mystified policeman learned from the indignant young woman that Duffy had attempted to flirt with her and that she had lost her <laughs> temper before she thought of calling for police protection. It turns into a wacky farce of George Duffy being arrested and scolded by a judge, while Virginia states that she is seeking a rematch with Cora Livingston. Oh, so this is all just a, a great publicity grab on her end. Yeah, that's my guess. I wish I could put men um, in headlocks anytime they tried to flirt with me. That sounds, uh, that sounds good. Honestly, what's stopping you? Literally nothing. I could actually probably charge for that at the merch table. <laughs> That'll be $40. And at the top of the same page was, quote, hid their baby in the haunted house and then leapt over the cliff. A report about a couple that left their baby in an abandoned and supposedly haunted house in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and then leapt to their deaths to avoid the man being arrested for forging checks. It includes a photo of the spooky house and an illustration of a weird-looking baby. <laughs> I like to think that instead of just trying to escape forged checks, they were trying to escape the haunted house, and this was all a ploy by a very spooky ghost to get themselves a free baby. I, I feel like there is a horror movie in the making right here, because, yeah, there's just a lot of weird layers to this that I do not have <laughs> answers to. A lot going on, guys. Always something doing. <laughs> From the Appleton Post Crescent, May 2nd, 1930, announcing that Virginia Mercer Rowe, quote, better known to Appleton people as Marie Didrick, moved to Newark, New Jersey to make her home. She laments that she didn't take off as a huge star in women's wrestling, that many vaudeville stages wouldn't allow intergender matches, and then, quote, Miss Mercer Rowe took to the stage via a musical route, playing an accordion but that has a fail to appeal to her and it's all off from now on. She plays- Well, I love, real quick, sorry to interject. I love that no matter what, this woman has managed to keep herself in the press uh, time after time after time, no matter what the circumstance. Oh yeah, no, she was great at getting press in her hometown. 
and that one from out west. And it also kind of breaks your heart to find out her accordion career didn't exactly take off. Quote, she played several well-known circuits for a few years and now has decided to abandon the effort. Miss Missero was accordion soloist at the Elks Club Bowling Banquet Tuesday evening and was one of the features on the program. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. She should have worked that into a wrestling career, really. From May 29th, 1931, Madison, Wisconsin Capital Times, an article about the boom-bust nature of wrestling. Quote, Wrestling comes and goes. Revivals, even greater than the current upturn, have been seen in the past, and each chapter ends with a note of disgust. Wrestling prosperity will last just so long. Eventually, the wrestlers slay themselves by their own cleverness. When things reach the stage of being too good, such as the Gotch Hackenschmidt match in Chicago 20 years ago, a match that grossed a gate of $94,000, wrestling falls into a swift decline. Quote, Repetition of stunts within each of the big leagues soon palls upon the paying clientele. Even the most avid action loses its charm when tinged by the suspicion that has been rehearsed. Years ago, when Paul Bowser, the big shot of New England wrestling, was getting his start in Boston, he was the hero of a vaudeville wrestling show in which the gladiator offered to throw anybody in the house. Sometimes a woman would come up out of the audience and do battle with him. The action was spirited and all that. The lady giving the gentleman all he could do to master her, but after the customers learned that Cora Livingston, the wrestlerette, was Mrs. Paul Bowser, enthusiasm for the skit lost much of its savor. Wrestlerette, bringing that one back. Yeah, I do love, again, this is, I always love pointing this out to the people used to think it was real crowd that people were seeing through wrestling's bullshit. Very early. Very early. I mean, this is not even a new t turn of events right here. I have articles going back to the 1870s saying, what are you idiots doing? Don't bet on wrestling. I do love that the press had no problems calling out obvious fake wrestling. Yeah, so again, like uh, Nick just stated, this is not a new thing. So it's funny to have people still, I mean, if, if someone finds out you're a wrestling fan or they find out you're a wrestler, you know, the first thing they always ask is, well, isn't that fake? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> but is it is it still entertaining? Movies are fake, you know, but, but it doesn't uh, really make things lose their appeal. I was once kicked out of a Shakespeare play for pointing out that the actor was not the real Prince of Denmark. It's like, his name's not even Hamlet. It's Steve. I heard him talking out back. <laughs> the audacity. How dare you pull back the curtain like that? Kayfabe. From the Philadelphia Inquirer, August 18th, 1931, in News of the World, Told in Pictures, there was a photo of Cora with Cora Livingston of Cambridge, Massachusetts, who is contesting the claims of Mademoiselle Porter of France and Signorina Zambelli of Italy to the Women's Championship of the World. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on August 19, 1931, claimed that Zambelli and Porter fought to a draw recently and Cora challenges either to a fight. So we now are getting into the maybe she's a bit of a has-been, maybe she's just too busy, Maybe she's just trying to stay in the headlines, but calling out the younger women wrestlers who are 
making their mark on things. And every time they have their moment, she has to interject by pointing out she's still the champion and challenges either of them to a match that will probably not materialize. So the usual at this, at this point in time. From the Tampa Tribune on March 13th, 1932, women shaking off weaker title. Listing Cora along with numerous women champions of various sports, discussing how today's woman is, quote, capable of making up her own mind. She knows what she wants and goes right ahead and gets it. There is also a discussion of whether married women should be allowed to hold jobs during the Depression, but, quote, it is very unlikely that they can do anything about it. That's right, the Great Depression had come upon the U.S. and the world following the 1929 Black Thursday stock market crash. So we have now gone into the Great Depression from where we started in part one. It just shows again just how long this woman's imprint on the business lasted. From March 22nd, 1932, a short piece about Skeets Gordon, who, quote, wrestled Cora Livingston once. Skeets was just a kid, but a good wrestler. And when he went into the ring with her, he was a little timid about taking a hold of a lady. But when Cora grabbed him by the neck and pretty much broke it, Skeets discovered <laughs> no hold was barred. He threw her, but in his own words, she was a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that could have been ripped from an article now in 2024. And if anyone was wondering, you do still run into the same uh, reservations with uh, intergender wrestling these days. Men will frequently be afraid to uh, lay anything in until you uh, rough them up a little. From the June 21st, 1932, the Missoulian, reporting that on an upcoming card, Betty Bushy will be wrestling Cyclone Tommy Thomas. You may remember Betty as the swimmer turned wrestler, the article claims that Cora and Betty went to a 15-round draw, as though that was a thing in wrestling. It also claimed that... <laughs> I'm so glad it is not. Yeah, 15 rounds. Like, what? Did they think it was boxing? I feel like somebody didn't ask at least one other person before writing that down. I would tap so many times just to get that thing over with. I would throw myself over the ropes out of the ring, and I am not physically capable of that. It also claimed that Cora retired and left Betty the championship, as though that were a thing as well. So, of all the weirdest title changes that weren't actual title changes, this may be my favorite, claiming that Cora retired and gifted Betty as a retirement present from herself, like it was willed to Betty. Yeah, totally, totally a thing that happens. Maybe it's like a wedding where... Cora retires and then like turns her back on the crowd and throws the title belt like behind her over her head and whoever catches it <laughs> is the new champion. It. Yeah, and Betty's the one that caught it. That seems a little a little bit like risky business if it's uh, as durable as most titles are. From the Akron Beacon Journal, August 9th, 1932. Paul Bowser was given a banquet reception attended by the governor of Massachusetts. The article reminisces about the days when Bowser and Cora, quote, toured the kerosene circuit with a carnival athletic troupe. Many a summer evening, not so many years ago, they both wrestled opponents on Main Street. The kerosene circuit, I of course had to look this up, meant a run of low-budget one-night stands in small towns and bad venues. 
It meant that the places were so podunk that they still used kerosene to light the place after dark. So saying you ran the kerosene circuit was not exactly high praise upon yourself. It meant that, yes, you are on tour. Yes, you are in show business, but you are working the dive bars and the shit shows. Hell yeah, you're working the shindies, brother. From the October 8th, 1932, woman to be shown on mat. Quote, Cora Livingstone, because of course it's a typo. Famous woman wrestler will make her first appearance in Albany Monday night. This is assured when Merle Christensen, local matchmaker, completed negotiations for the appearance of the Montana girl who has been putting on sensational shows all over the country. She is booked for a match here with Charles Murphy of Corvallis. She is on tour on the coast and route the south. So I have a feeling we have a fake Cora Livingston. That's what it sounds like. Because I see no other anything about Cora doing matches. I don't see anything about her listed from Boston or any other place or anything else about the match. I don't even see a report of what happened with this match. So I have a feeling that this promoter either booked the wrong person or booked a fake and then had to pull the plug on things or change things around. Because, yeah, claiming that Cora is a Montana girl who has been putting on sensational shows lately and is coming on from a big tour from the South. It's like, nope, that's not what Cora was doing. Things, none of these things line up. None of this checks out. So, again, I know the fake name or calling somebody like Young Hackenschmidt or Young Jenkins. There was always the play on the name ripoff. That goes all the way up to advertising somebody as Ultimate the Warrior for like shit shows <laughs> in the 90s. Like that, that was oh, a real Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, they were doing things like that. Shocking news, wrestling is not the most ethical business on earth. But I do kind of wonder if the promoter got swindled on his end where a fake Cora Livingston was offering him a booking or it just like happened to be somebody with a same name. It could have been like Laura Livingstone or something like that. And he misread it and got real excited. Who knows? Laura Livingstone. Yeah. It's like, hi, this is Laura Livingstein. Cora Livingston. Awesome. Don't mind if I do. Exactly. Waterbury Democrat, November 1st, 1932. Quote, Cora Livingston, wife of Paul Bowser, the big wrestling man from Boston, was once a wrestler herself. As a burlesque queen, she challenged all comers of her sex. So this is the first time I find her career definitively listed as past tense. So, yeah, again, like I said, your last match is your last match, not necessarily a big retirement match. Sometimes you just fade away. Sometimes you say you're still active, but you're busy helping your husband run one of the biggest wrestling markets in the country, and you get a little too busy to double fist wrestling and business, especially when she is most likely 45 years old at this point. So yeah, as a 45 year old myself, I can tell you, your energy becomes a lot more limited. Your ability to multitask and focus on different projects. As a 34 year old wrestling, my body feels like trash and I want to die half the time. So I can only imagine. Especially since she has been active since she was 18 years old had more matches a week than most people had in a year. So yes, she is 
entitled to taking it a little bit easy as she enters her 40s. So, yes, I could definitely see why, you know what, she doesn't need to go out and have matches. Maybe she was looking for the right person to drop the belt to. Maybe she intended on wrestling more once things settle down. Who can say? Don't have any direct information on it. These are my inferences based on what I assume. And honestly, with the wrestling business, you're never really out. I say that. If you can manage to separate yourself entirely from wrestling uh, at the end of your career, whether that's uh, as a wrestler, a manager, a promoter, uh, production, Godspeed. <laughs> from the Lynn, Massachusetts Daily Item, December 15th, 1932, announcing the upcoming match between Babe LaForme and Dot McGuire both of whom have challenged Cora Livingston, and quote, this match will go a long way towards eliminating one from the proposed match. So we're now in that weird little phase where Cora is in the picture, but she's not in the picture, but she's still kind of like the gold standard because she is technically the champion. So you have women fighting to become the number one contender to a title that Cora doesn't even seem to be defending at this point. Yeah, she's she's uh, retained her relevancy very well, all things considered. And then this one's just a fun, again, it's just a weird little window into wrestling in this time. From the Indiana Palladium item, January 2nd, 1933, horseplay among wrestlers is ruled out by General Clinton. Quote, no more roughhouse or burlesque wrestling goes in Chicago. No longer will the big hairy-chested mammoths of the mat be allowed to toss each other out of the ring, exchange bites, slug with each other, and indulge in other monkey business to the huge delight of the spectators. In the future, wrestlers must wrestle, or be fined, suspended, or both. These fellows go through the same act all over the country. In some places, the referees are part of the act, but in Illinois, they are representatives of the state and must uphold the dignity. Chicago had a long history of banning and regulating wrestling and boxing, and not without good reason. Wrestling was temporarily banned in April of that year, after the Joe Savoldi-Jim Londos match resulted in Savoldi winning the match, but not the title from Londos, despite it being advertised as a title match. The city allowed wrestling to continue, but only if matches are properly advertised as exhibitions or proper contests under specific rules. Big, hairy mammoths of men. Or was it big, hairy, meaty mammoths of men? Or am I wishful thinking? What a fucking mouthful. Do you know how long I had to keep repeating that phrase in my head because I wanted to remember that to just make mention of that? That is absolutely absurd. And Chicago also kept having problems with wrestling because of betting scandals, betting scams, that kind of thing, people not getting the right bribe at the right time, so things would get shut down temporarily. A lot of scandal, a lot of collusion with state officials, a lot of money changing hands in unethical ways in the city of Chicago. Shocking news to nobody. If you listen to my series about Parson Davies, you'll hear a lot more about that. 
But this is the sort of thing I love, is this transitional period when wrestling was becoming more spectacle for the sake of moving tickets as opposed to a betting culture type of fixed sport. And things, of course, start getting wilder because they need to sell tickets, and that's how you do it. And you have these old stick-in-the-muds coming out being like, tut-tut, nobody should be having fun and enjoying themselves at a wrestling show. Imagine that. Imagine everyone just sitting on their hands the whole time in silence. I mean, I've been to shows where it's like that, but that's, that's no fun for anyone. A lot of palms being greased, it sounds like. Yeah, I like in that descriptive, the guy was like, oh, all these awesome, cool things that make wrestling fun will not be allowed, despite them being, quote, to the huge delight of the spectators. It's literally footloose, but with fun wrestling as opposed to dancing. <laughs> Terrible. Kevin Bacon isn't even in this. From the Portland, Maine Evening Express on February 2nd, 1933. Lewis, not so hot as champ, beats McGill. Battle Royal furnishes most of program's laughs. A review of a bad wrestling show, which is quite often my favorite thing, where Ed Lewis looked, quote, old, fat, and slow, and that, quote, Lewis, billed as champion of the world by New York State Athletic Commission, looks about as much the part of champion as Cora Livingston. Which does make me say, what exactly are you trying to say there? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, I'm not sure what the dig is. It's clearly a dig. I Were they commenting that Cora is old, an old washed up has-been? Is it just misogyny? Was Cora seen out and about with a few extra pounds around her middle? Either way, fuck you. All around. All around, fuck you. The finish was described as, quote, Lewis brought a welcome end to the farce by pinning McGill again with some headlocks. But it seemed like the reporter did have fun and enjoyed himself. There was a four-person battle royal that brought, quote, the real and practically the only laughs of the night. Quote, a lot of humorous antics cropped out, and despite the fact that several incidents, including Mr. Beston's punch, looked too well-practiced, this battle was the hit of the show. So it looked, it looked too well practiced, but it was also the hit of the show. And I love that you have this review versus where we just talked about the outrage over the ballyhoo and nonsense fun of pro wrestling, where this guy's like, yeah, man, this wrestling show was a bunch of bullshit. It ruled. <laughs> he got it. Yeah, it's always nice when you do have the ones that get it. It's like one of the very early ones of the Cora Livingston series when the reporter went to a wrestling show in Boston and he was from D.C. and saw Cora doing the same match with the same girl that he saw in D.C., but she was under a different name claiming to be from that hometown. Yeah. And he thought it was freaking amazing that they were pulling this this trick. Yeah, he he got it. It's you almost appreciate it more for the carny nature of it. I mean, I appreciate it more for that. Not everyone may. From the Brooklyn Times Union on September 5th, 1933, from the Sports Roundup, 
Quote, After a lapse of several years, the wrestlers of the female species will perform in Boston tonight. Two the hours. wrestlers of the female species. Okay. Yes. Good job, David Attenborough, by identifying the female species, you absolute dork. I would have gone with Loon. Oh, there we are. But back to the article. Two lassies, Janet Taylor and Flora Libbings, will exchange grips and groans for the edification of the Beantowners. Cora Livingston, long retired from the sport, was the last woman grappler of prominence to show in Boston. So again, just showing she casts a very long shadow. Good for her. What a legacy. Again, she didn't have like a big retirement match. She has kind of faded away being too busy and not being super passionate about getting back into her tights and grappling. That she is still... Imagine that. Yeah, she is still just the gold standard for what women's wrestling is and should be. And speaking of the gold standard, I looked up the Howard, whose advertisements were usually so damn good, and all I found was a notice about the theater being shut down for 30 days. No. The Boston Globe on January 18th, 1933, stated that investigators, quote, described lack of costumes, voluptuous dancing, alleged profane dialogue, and testified that 50 of the patrons in the balconies were boys of 15 to 20 years of age. At this point, the entertainment... Something always was doing at the Howard, is what they're saying. Pretty much. At this point, the entertainment pages, which were once filled with live theater of all kinds, are now at least 50% ads for movie houses. So, it is over the course of Cora's career, seeing the bright, vibrant culture of live entertainment being replaced with the talkies. Oh, the talkies. The introduction of the full film. The Howard sued the New England Watch and Ward Society for $25,000, claiming the accusations that led to the closing were slanderous, untrue, and made by the society. I then had to look up, who are the Watch and Ward Society? They who were are they? They were an organization of rich prudes, to put it nicely, who fought to suppress and ban anything they considered lewd or obscene. They fought to ban books such as Brave New World, All Quiet on the Western Front, and even classics like the Decameron. They attacked libraries and booksellers, and, quote, banned in Boston became a marketing tag for many authors of even mildly risque material. So it really shows that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Oh, yeah, things always end well when you start banning books. That's, that's the right progressive direction to go in. And again, it does show just how the burlesque and vaudeville world try to stay relevant in the time of motion pictures taking over entertainment. Because, you know what, you start losing people to the movie houses, well, how do you keep them coming back? By making things more extreme. It's like the same thing that happens in wrestling. You know, if you start losing the audience, hey, bring out the tables, bring out the barbed wire, bring out the weirdness. And in order to move tickets, they had to start bending the laws, if not outright breaking them, serving underage customers, 
anything to get butts in seats and drinks in hands. Ethical? No. Understandable? Absolutely. From the Lancaster, New York Enterprise on November 9, 1933, covers the state of New York denying permits for a match between Mary LaPlante and Nellie McDonald. They reminisce about Lottie Oliver of Lancaster, whom they erroneously claim beat Cora for the title 25 years ago. I'm still a little sad that Lottie didn't have a long career based on what little I found about her a few episodes back. The article covers how her father, Teddy Oliver, was a former prize fighter, acted as her manager, and how they nearly went broke taking her act to the South. So yes, we are starting to see kind of a bit of a cultural blowback against women's wrestling, where New York is now denying permits for women's matches. So in what year is this again? That is in 1933. Great, so we're already traveling backwards. January 27th, 1934, unable to fathom commission report, wrestling declared on level by recent report of New York Athletic Commission. It was an article mocking New York City's commission, claiming that wrestling is a legitimate, honest sport. Quote, I have read the report backwards and forwards, up and down and sideways, and had it translated into eight languages, including the patois of the Javanese headhunters, but it doesn't make any more sense than a Gertrude Stein interpretation of James Joyce with a hangover. How's that for a heady descriptor? I was just thinking, man, that really uh, paints quite the picture. Quote, All I can gather from the report is that wrestling is an honest robbery, a crooked double-crossing legitimate business. Wrestling, that is such a good description of wrestling. Isn't it? Quote, Wrestling, like the Einstein theory, is bent space and thus beyond the comprehension of a mere sports writer. What? <laughs> What? This is great. Why has this not been applied to like 60 different wrestling events or reviews? Anything. This is amazing. I always, again, I love when sports writers just have this bemused bullshit fest about wrestling. They're like, it, yeah, no, yeah, no, sure, by all means, declare it legitimate, you fucking nerds. <laughs> Which is kind of how I feel like all sports, like normal sports, is that awful by not calling wrestling a normal sport? How all normal sports fans are in regards to wrestling as a whole? December 6th, 1934, in a Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Berkshire Eagle, part of a local rundown, they mention Paul Bowser, Boston Wrestling Czar, bought three yearlings at a local market, but they primarily mentioned that his wife was Cora Livingston, champion wrestler. Bowser developed a passion for racehorses, and according to the Boston Globe on March 12, 1936, Bowser's harness horses are among the best in racing. So, like many gentlemen of leisure, Paul Bowser turned to owning, buying, training racehorses. Cora and Bowser had a large estate, in Massachusetts, where they had many championship-level racehorses, so yeah, it's a it's quite the quite the retirement for Cora, running a territory, running a school, and raising racehorses. Cora's fucking killing it, man, and Paul Bowser. 
because here's the thing like if you're not aware horses are not cheap that is an expensive hobby on top of racehorses uh especially then those are a hot commodity like loaded and if you ever wonder how expensive is a horse to own there is a fantastic episode of the simpsons where lisa gets a horse <laughs> it'll fill you in the december 10th 1934 pittsburgh sun telegraph old matt days recalled which was a nostalgia piece about wrestling in the years past from the Greco-Roman days of the post-Civil War years to the Terrible Turk, Frank Gotch, Hackenschmidt, Sorokichi Matsuda, horrifically misspelled, of course, and Cora Livingston, amongst other legends. So it's really nice that in 34, when you're looking back upon the shining days of the early 20th century, Cora is listed right there with Gotch, Hackenschmidt, and, the, and many others of that level. So it's kind of cool to see where her legacy was already. It's kind of wild when you think back on all of this, and especially with what we've been talking about this episode, that she's not a more household name in women's wrestling. Not that there's really any older women's wrestlers that are a household name, but you'd think she'd be a... a among those well it's kind of like what we talked about a million years ago when we recorded the mildred burke episodes where there's no direct lineage between what is happening today in wwe or AEW in connection with cora livingston there's no direct lineage from point a to point b that's fair and since both with mildred and with cora there's no way to present that as this is the foundation upon which we are built. This is how we can present our champion as a direct connection to this champion. And because that's a broken line, it doesn't really make as much sense because it's harder to put her on a t-shirt. It's harder to do the like the Cora Livingston Memorial Battle Royal, things like that because there's no way to say it went from Cora to this person, to this person, to this person, to this person, because it didn't. They had no connection to what is considered modern pro wrestling. Even NWA has no connection to Cora Livingston and her title and her lineage. So yeah, it's a little harder to market. And if you can't market it, why put it in your history? Oh, you just broke it down far too well. From the New London, Connecticut, The Day, on March 9th, 1935, with a throwback sports piece, quote, March 8th, 1911, Cora Livingston, claiming to be the world champion lady wrestler of the world, met her Waterloo in Olga Nelson. Miss Nelson scored a fall in 16 minutes at Boston before a large crowd that went wild. However, Miss Livingston won two of the three falls and retained her title. So I love- Met her Waterloo. Yeah, she met her Waterloo. It's, it was her big, big failure, her big defeat. It makes it yes. sound so dramatic. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Yeah, it seems like they're making it so dramatic. Like this was her big loss, her big disaster where everything went wrong for her at long last. Meanwhile, it's like she gave up one out of three falls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not particularly uh, earth shattering. 
or shouldn't have been anyway. It makes me think of that an episode of The Simpsons, another Simpsons reference, where Mr. Burns is like, I don't I don't know why they bothered showing up. They barely won. <laughs> Just barely. What's even the point? From the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine, March 17th, 1935. Will our girls lose their femininity in sports? No. Oh, is boy. The oh, wait. Okay. No. Okay. Great. No is the consensus of those in Philadelphia who predict sturdier physiques and higher morals for the athlete. Short shorts and scanty bathing attire notwithstanding. It was a rundown on how women are just as capable of being top athletes as are the men. Among the examples are, of course, Cora Livingston defeating Laura Bennett for the title. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I'm not sure which direction I want to go with this. On one hand, it's like, no, there's nothing unfeminine about being a champion athlete. On the other hand, short shorts and scanty bathing attire notwithstanding. Go ahead and be a champion. Just don't sexualize yourself, you sinner. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. I didn't realize we were going to slut shame athletes for not running the marathon wearing pants. Oh boy, do you have a lot to learn. And here's a fun one. From the Waterbury Democrat, March 12th, 1936, woman wrestler gets in trouble. Mrs. Coral. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good. Okay. Go ahead. Mrs. Cora Livingston Bowser, wife of a Boston wrestling promoter and one-time women's wrestling champion, faced court arraignment today on five charges growing out of an alleged hit-and-run accident. Mrs. Bowser was arrested in Wellsby last night after she allegedly struck Lewis Golding, 27, as he stepped from his automobile in front of his home here. What? Taken to police headquarters, Mrs. Bowser gave her age as 38, which is not exactly true, and said she was returning from an Afghan knitting party. She was held on charges of drunkenness, drunken driving, operating without a license, leaving the scene of an accident after damaging property, and leaving the scene of an accident after injuring a person. Her husband is Paul Bowser, Boston wrestling promoter. Oh boy. So apparently Cora, with a couple of drinks in her, hit a dude on the street with her car and kept on driving. <laughs> We've all been there. We've, We've all been there. We've all Who been there. Who hasn't done this? <laughs> totally normal behavior. Yeah, 100%. At least she has a better driving record than Sonny. Woof. Oh, Jesus. Stiff. According to the Boston Globe, on March 12, 1936, Cora pleads not guilty in Newton District Court to drunkenness, operating under the influence of liquor, going away from the scene of an accident after injury to a person, and driving without her license in her possession. She was released... Criminal record is getting a little... a little long. I mean, still, as far as a Dark Side of the Ring episode is considered, this would be very light. But hey, if there ever was one, they'd probably call you up to be a consultant on it. She was released for a $500 bond for a hearing March 18th. Uh, 
The Boston Globe covered that hearing on the 18th. Mrs. Bowser fined for drunken driving. Cora was fined $100 for each charge of driving while intoxicated and leaving the scene of an accident. In today's money, a $200 fine would be about $4,200, which is still incredibly light for drunk driving, hitting a dude, and keep on going. Yeah, I feel like that was less expensive than her theft bail. Yeah, $4,200. Anybody, I, I, I haven't had one, but I know plenty of people who have had DUIs and that didn't involve anything other than getting pulled over and blowing wrong on a breathalyzer. And that shit was like $20,000 by the time it's all said and done. What the fuck? I'm, I'm very glad I behaved myself and have never had to deal with that. Okay, great, wonderful. May 28th, 1936. Paul Bowser celebrates his 50th birthday by leaving the hospital where he had been confined for seven weeks with an undisclosed illness. In the photo, Cora is by his side. I tried finding what he had, but it's the 1930s, so it's just a general, you're in your late 40s and you're sick, so could have been pneumonia, could have been quadruple outer space tuberculosis. <laughs> no idea. All I know is he was sick as heck and in a hospital for several weeks. Probably pneumonia, who can say, wasn't there, not his doctor. He's, uh, you know, he's protected by, by HIPAA regulations that I simply cannot bypass. I was just about to make a HIPAA joke. There you go. The Minneapolis Star Tribune on July 17th, 1936, reported that Cora was taking care of Bowser's business while he recuperated. They mentioned how she was, quote, for many years, the holder of the world's lightweight wrestling champion among women. She frequently appeared at the Dewey Theater in the days of burlesque, meeting all covers at every performance. Do you remember her? So we do see Cora being fully capable of running one of the biggest wrestling markets in the United States in her husband's stead. So that really does show her capacity for business, her capacity for knowing the business, and her capacity for garnering the respect of her male underlings, talent, and co-workers. No, it's very impressive. Like you said, just showing her prowess as a businesswoman, but the fact that not only that, she has managed to keep her name in the papers outside of just keeping <laughs> Paul Bowser and uh, his endeavors public. You know, the fact that uh, no one has said anything negative quite the testament yeah there's no like crazy old lady thinks she can run wrestling tee hee exactly, exactly what it would sound like too from the february 12th 1937 chattanooga news stumbled across the reviews of a match between mildred burke and clara mortensen a new generation of women wrestlers was on the rise and would be taking over the scene during world war ii at some point, there will be a long-form podcast series that we'll do about that, eventually. But the comparisons start to fly very quickly. The Richmond Times-Dispatch on March 28, 1937, covers Clara Mortens' upcoming match and how it was 15 years ago that Cora wrestled there. 
On April 1st, the same paper discussed women in wrestling and declared that Cora Livingston, according to Clara Mortensen, was the Hackenschmidt of her day. The press would be constantly comparing Clara to Cora, and the Richmond Times-Dispatch on October 17th, 1937, reported that Clara was wrestling a Livingston-trained woman, Bridget Donovan, of Boston. So, that's a heck of a statement, not just for Clara Mortensen to compare Cora to Hackenschmidt, but for the paper to print that at face value without putting any sass on it, any criticism, any mockery. No, that was very straightforward sports journalism. The Portsmouth Star, February 20th, 1938, had a piece about Mae Weston, who was a rising star, and was set to face Mildred Burke. The article claimed that Weston was trained by Cora. She was actually a Billy Wolf trainee, but they obviously couldn't point out that both were trained by the same person. Kayfabe, everybody. But if you're going to kayfabe it and you can connect it to Cora, that meant something. I, I mean, take advantage of what you can. September 17, 1939, reading Pennsylvania Times. Photo of Paul and Cora accepting the silver cup at the harness racing program at the Reading Fair. Their horse, Dominion Grattan, was in competition. Good for them. <laughs> How nice. From the Washington Times, December 8th, 1937. While covering the upcoming Jim Londos versus Billy Bardish match, the article reports on, quote, A special bout will introduce Mildred Burke of Columbus, Ohio, feminine welterweight champion who meets Clarice Davis of Central City, Iowa. Miss Burke is said to be another Cora Livingston. They're comparing everyone to her. She is the bar. She really is. And she's also connecting to the generation that might still be kind of on the outlier of knowing what's cool and hip. I mean, we live in a day of social media and of the internet where anyone with two thumbs and a smartphone can find out what's cool in wrestling. But back in these days, you really had to work on appealing to nostalgia for older crowds. You had to be like, oh, hey, this person's the new Frank Gotch. This person's the new Strangler Lewis. This person's the new Cora Livingston. Oh, then they have a reference point. The September 20th, 1938, St. Joseph News Press recounts how Cora Livingston was championed 15 years ago, but women's wrestling had died out and been banned by the Missouri Commission. But now it's been reestated and Mildred Burke had been recognized as the champion. Mildred Burke would routinely be compared to Cora and hailed as the greatest lady wrestler since Cora Livingston. And others claiming that Burke would have beaten Cora in her prime. So again, we're not just simply using Cora as the measuring stick at this point, but putting Burke above her in the all-time great rankings. Yeah, and it seems like quickly, too. Yeah, Mildred became a big star very quickly. If you want to learn how that happened, go back through the archives a few years ago. We did a two-parter about Mildred and Howitzer was there with us at the time. And something I do notice is there's a lot of stories, if you look at the brief biographies of Cora Livingston, 
claiming that she was a mentor to Mildred Burke and that she went to many of Mildred's shows and was supportive of her. I have found no real information on that one way or the other. You would think that if Cora was in attendance at one of Mildred's matches, it would have made the papers. It would have been... Yes, it would have been exploited. And also there's a few good biographies of Mildred Burke, and there is no mention of a relationship with Cora Livingston. So I feel that that's just wrestling lore, that's mythology, kind of painting over the history, trying to connect Mildred to Cora, trying to create the illusion of a connection, a passing of the torch that was never really passed. Yes, absolutely. I would agree with everything you just said. I, uh, there's no way that would have escaped the press. It's like the end of the movie Man of a Thousand Faces. It was a biography of actor Lon Chaney, and at the end of the movie, he gives, on his deathbed, he gives his makeup kit to his son, Lon Chaney Jr., and it's a passing of the torch. That never happened. Lon Chaney did not want his son involved in movie making. He didn't want his son to be an actor. He knew what a terrible way to make a living it was and wanted to keep his son away from it. But Universal had Lon Chaney Jr. under contract, so they made a biography about his father that ends with his father handing over the legacy and the name to his son, almost like a luchador taking on his father's name, but with a junior or Ihodel and wearing the same mask. It's, again, it's just marketing, doesn't make it real, but ultimately reality doesn't move tickets as well as lore. From the Lancaster Eagle Gazette on December 29th, 1939, Betty Bushy is still claiming she defeated Cora for the title and is somehow still defending it. Hey, everybody, uh, everybody has a speak. Speaking of lore that doesn't stack up against reality, <laughs> former swimmer turned wrestler is defending the title that she claimed she was gifted as a retirement gift by Cora. Oh boy. There's a lot of pieces to that puzzle. And, uh, I think we're short a few. And here's one of my favorite things I found from the Richmond times dispatch on January 5th, 1941, some real fine reporting here from question and answer column. Question, have you any information pertaining to Cora Livingston, the woman wrestler? Answer, she was a great woman wrestler who held the world championship and the Richard K. Fox Police Gazette belt in the period between 1888 and 1895. She was also a club swinger and often traveled around the country following the route mapped out by John L. Sullivan for many of his exhibitions. She has been dead many years. Yep, sounds sounds like her. Yeah, Definitely sure. who we've talked about. I, that's one of my favorite things. I This happened with Tom Jenkins as well, where there were articles about like, oh boy, old Tom Jenkins, like who's been dead for a while. And he's like, I'm still here, actually. I'm just old and retired. <laughs> but yeah, doesn't I, check out. I love how they they put her career 20 years in the wrong direction and claimed that she was long dead. Questions and answers doesn't imply the actual answer. Just an answer. 
Oh yikes! It's like it's like googling. This is like this is like ask Jeeves. <laughs> From the Louisville, Kentucky Courier Journal, April 29th, nineteen forty-two, Femme Flipper number one box office magnet. Quote. For years, wrestling promoters have been stepping into circus sideshow territory for many of their Matt Marvels, but only in fairly recent years have they invaded the kitchen for their talent. During the Second World War, the men were off to fight or doing wartime-adjacent work with the military. This led to Mildred Burke and many other women wrestlers becoming top stars and top draws. The paper points out the appearance of Cora in Louisville in 1911 and what a star she was. From the Portland, Maine Evening Express, April 26th, 1951. Is wrestling Minsky's successor these days? Minsky being a reference to the Minsky Burlesque Company that dominated and scandalized New York City's nightlife for decades. The author, Bud Cornish, points out that in the age of television, women wrestlers are now required to be glamorous. Oh, good. Quote, Time was when girl torso twisters looked like something the cat dragged in from behind a tree in the Tennessee mountains. They were then advertised as hillbillies, and they featured pigtails, no makeup, bulging muscles, and gawky uniforms. The now, audacity of those women to just go out there and grapple without, you know, pizzazz. Exactly. Quote, but now, ah now, the accent is on glamour. The article reminisces of Cora's heyday, quote, Cora gave out with the histrionics even if playing only to the ticket taker and five guys at the show because it was a place to get away from a snowy night. I will remember Cora because in those golden days she was a shocker. A lady never used cuss words in public. But at the old arena on High Street, I was assigned to watch Cora perform against some foil whose name has long since passed into the never-kept records of wrestling. Through the years, I have remembered how stunned I was when, before the mad throng of perhaps ten, <laughs> three of whom were reading the night's evening express and paying no attention, Cora burst out in vocal wrath, turning to the referee, a mere male. She blasted him back to the ring post, pale and shaking with, Make her stay the hell on the mat. <laughs> oh, what foul language. I just love the picture he paints because I do appreciate him saying with television. Now everybody has to look like a Hollywood star. Nobody's just being their authentic grimy selves. So I, I, I like that, they, that energy, but I love referring to the opponent whose name has long since passed into the never-kept records of wrestling. Just the poetry of that is so... So flowery. It is. It's, it's amazing. Lima, Ohio News, February 5th, 1952. Notice about Betty Hawkins versus Lynn Livingston, claiming that Lynn is Cora's daughter. Also claims that Miss Hawkins was a polio victim three years ago, so that's, that's impressive. I was intrigued <laughs> These by... These are the, all great gimmicks. Yeah, the, the, she, she gets wheeled out in an iron lung. <laughs> I was intrigued by this Lynn Livingston character. I found other articles claiming that Lynn was Cora's niece. And looks like the truth is Lynn was Cora's grandniece in actuality. Did some training with her at the uh, Bowser Academy. 
But yes, not her daughter, but you can see how the marketing would work better with this is the daughter of Cora Livingston as opposed to grand niece. Just looks better on a poster. Right. And I mean, everyone loves a legacy. The Miami Herald on February 26, 1952, with a piece about the Bowsers. Quote, As Cora Livingston, she was bending headlocks on feminine opponents when Mildred Burke, present champion, was wrestling with school books. The photo at the top shows Cora showing off her bicep to an impressed Paul. So yeah, the photo, I sent you this photo when I first found it. I didn't let it be a surprise because it was so wholesome. It's, you know, they're both. So wholesome, you guys. Yeah, you need I'll, to go look at it. It's great. I'll post it. Yeah, because it's it's they're an old couple now. And Cora's like holding up her old arm with her bicep. And her husband, Paul Bowser, is just looking so astonished by how strong she still is. It just it warmed my heart. Find you a man who looks at you like Paul Bowser looks at Cora Livingston. Knoxville Journal, September 25th, 1952. A woman claiming to be Cora Livingston called into a radio show and claimed to have wrestled men during her career. The radio show topic was an upcoming mixed tag match, which the Legion Hall claimed was the first of its kind. The author agrees with the advertised angle since Cora wrestled men one-on-one. -on -one. So, quote, it then will be the original two ladies and two men embroilment or a mixed double header and may the Lord pity them all. So this oh. is 1952, and we're seeing mixed tag matches. So one man, one woman per team. That's very progressive. I mean, we were already talking about um, some intergender happening prior to this, but I don't think there were many mixed tags. Correct. Yeah, tag wrestling really was only taking off around this time. So yeah, to see it used as a gimmick with intergender i can't tell you whether the men and the women actually interacted or if it was the woman on woman man on men kind of like you see in wwe can't say that's kind of my guess but it's still something you don't expect to see in the 1950s no not at all the boston globe september 9th 1956 our changing boston always something doing one to eleven a nostalgia piece about the howard which had been closed for two years at this point. Quote, That was the quarter century from the middle 1890s to 1917. They were the days when sliding Billy Watson was at his best. They were the days when handsome, likable Cora Livingston, world's champion woman wrestler, was taking on all comers and beating most of the other women in that game. They were also the days when the Boston strong boy, John L. Sullivan, appeared on the old Howard stage. They were, towards the end along in 1915-1917, the days when the theater's longtime press agent, Fred Doherty, began turning out provocative advertisements for the shows. So Fred Doherty, we finally have the name of the amazing copywriter who is making all of those incredibly fun advertisements for the Howard that have delighted us all this time. Fantastic. What a guy. Fred Doherty, here's to you. April 22nd, 1957, Cora Livingston passed away. Though Wikipedia puts it as the 23rd, which was just when her obituary appeared. From the Boston Globe, April 23rd, 1957, Mrs. Paul Bowser, Cora B. Tubbs Bowser, 
ex-professional woman wrestler and wife of sportsman promoter Paul Bowser, died yesterday at New England Baptist Hospital after a long illness. Under the name of Cora Livingston, before her marriage, Mrs. Bowser was world champion woman wrestler. For more than 30 years, she presided over one of Lexington's finest estates, Fair Oaks Farm on Grant Street, where the Bowsers have extensive stables and half-mile tracks for their harness horses. Her health had been failing for a year. Besides her husband, she leaves two sisters, Mrs. Frances Sawyer and Mrs. Stella Ebner, both of Webster, New York. The funeral will be held at Lexington Methodist Church at 2.30 p.m. on Wednesday. From the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, April 23, 1957, Lexington, Massachusetts, April 22nd, Associated Press. Mrs. Cora B. Bowser, 71, wife of wrestling promoter Paul Bowser of Monica, Pennsylvania, and a former wrestler herself, died last night in New England Baptist Hospital, Boston. Mrs. Bowser wrestled as Cora Livingston before World War I and won the women's title in 1914. She was a native of Oakfield, New York, and lived for a while in Pittsburgh. Funeral services will be in the Methodist Church here on Wednesday. The Tulsa Tribune on April 23, 1957, of course, focused on her match with Laura Bennett in Kansas City. I feel like the words, a life well lived, apply to her wholeheartedly. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, not only did she have a long and storied career as not only a wrestler, a uh, champion wrestler, she also was a petty thief. She <laughs> engaged in a little uh, attempted vehicular manslaughter. Um, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, she clearly accomplished so much and uh, left a pretty lasting influence on uh, wrestling as a whole, especially at that time. And that's a thing that has just been so mind-boggling, but of course understandable when you know how sports history can work, is that Cora Livingston was a titan in a time of titans. She was a recognized, noteworthy champion who was in the press constantly for decades. She was the standard to which all women wrestlers of the 30s and 40s were being held. If you were successful, you were the new Cora Livingston. She was the comparison. She was the measuring stick. She was integral to the running of the Boston wrestling market with her husband, Paul Bowser. She was a circus wrestler. She was a vaudeville wrestler. She was a burlesque wrestler. She was an undercard wrestler for championship matches. She really encompassed everything, both carnival and theater and stadium style wrestling. She was the media draw. She was a maniac in her youth. She was the beloved baby face later on. Every box has been checked in what a wrestling career can be and should be it's no it, it is it's absolutely astounding everything she managed to mark off the list and one thing i do want to point out is they did talk about how she was survived by her sisters no mention of a kid i don't know 
what that means because for those of you who might remember eight episodes ago or so there was she definitely had a child that's kind of what it seemed i don't know if it was just so kayfabed or maybe it was a stepson or a stepdaughter i have no direct information i would have to probably dig through the census birth records which i'm frankly not doing at this point maybe if i turn this into a book later i will maybe a little uh, engage in a little light time travel yeah a little light time travel check the census there are ways to do this but just not without a lot more work than i'm able to put into this again maybe if this turns into a book at some point that's where we'll go and that's something i really want to also impress is we have talked about cora livingston for probably 13 hours at this point which is insane this is the same length as my series about tom jenkins this is pretty close to the same length as my series about the gold dust trio so it's pretty close in length to the extended edition of all three of the lord of the rings movies also true and that's why i was shocked i actually had talked to somebody about doing uh, an episode of one-off as a guest host that'll be coming out soon where I was like, oh yeah, as soon as we get done with the Korra series, we'll put that one out. I expected this to be two, three parts, not 11, with a very long final episode. This is not what I expected, because when you look up Korra Livingston, it's blurbs. If you read a book about the history of wrestling or women's wrestling, she is a paragraph. She never had the big, super in-depth look at her career. If you look at her cage match stats, it's only one match. So it's kind of in a way an honor because I feel we have now presented the most in-depth and comprehensive biography of Cora in existence, which is something we can be proud of. Well, you can be proud of it. I feel uh, privileged to have listened to I guess, uh, the life and times of Cora Livingston. And how do you but, feel? But I mean, I do love, I, I love you, Cora. Rest in peace. Uh, but I'm also looking forward to saying rest in peace to uh, a plentitude of episodes on Cora Livingston and uh, seeing what we have up next. And what is up next? Because, yeah, this was a big project. And it came on the heels of a big project. I remember when I finished the Tom Jenkins series, I was like, I'm going to do some one-offs, some random stuff, easy things to put together. And then what do I do? I, again, dive into an enormous, complicated project. And this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold true to my word, where we're going to do some episodes that are just going to be one-offs, fun things, things where you will not find me researching for six hours a day for a week to make happen. So I you say I, that. I say that. I say that now. We'll see how well I hold true to that. But yeah, what is your ultimate takeaway? I know it's still kind of fresh because we literally just ended it. What is your overall takeaway from the Cora Livingston story? What does it mean to you? Uh, mostly, at, I guess, how progressive women's wrestling and reception to women's wrestling was at that time and i really hadn't seen anything to say um say as much prior to this 
Um, and I mean, obviously she was a trailblazer in her own right, but so much of the surroundings and the climate she was in is was pretty fascinating. And for our dear listeners, if you have opinions on the series, let us know. We would love your feedback. I want to know what Cora Livingston means to you, what you enjoyed learning about her, if you did, what you did, how you did, all of that. I would love to know how you feel about Corey Livingston. Tweet it at us. Do a review in iTunes. Send us an email. Send us a message. I would love to kind of get your feedback and we can talk about that on a, the a next episode or something like that. But for now, we're done. We're done with the story of Carl Livingston. Where do we go from here? Well, you know, it's going to be fun. You know, it's going to be educational. You're going to listen, learn, and party with the pro wrestling history nerds, Heidi Howitzer and Nick Gossert. Make sure you follow our accounts on social media, Just not just the shows, but us ourselves. We're sometimes fun outside of this. Occasionally we do. <laughs> oh, you spin such a yarn. And... Follow us on the Pro Wrestling History Nerd social media. I'll post as many of the photos and articles and strange things that I find there. Hopefully you find as entertaining as I do. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. It's time to say good evening, good morning, good night, wherever you are. For Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.